Bhavatu Sabha Mangalam Rakantu Sabha Devata Sabha Buddha Nubhavena Sada Soti Bhavantu Te Sabha Dhamma Nubhavena Sada Soti Bhavantu Te Sabha Sangha Nubhavena Sada Soti Bhavantu Te I can see the moon shining in through the window. In Buddhism, the full moon and new moon days are auspicious. We observe these as days of reaffirming our precepts and reflecting on our lives, our conduct, and how we are in our journey as human beings. So tonight, with the full moon shining, I will read a sutta to you, Loka Sutta, from the Udana, which is a collection of inspired utterances of the Buddha. And it's on examining the world. It doesn't necessarily mean looking at the world and seeing what's wrong with the world, but it's more of a way of looking at the world and seeing how we are as members of this world and reflecting on our own life, on how we're living. Thus have I heard. At one time the Lord was staying at Uruvela, beside the river Neranjara, at the foot of the Bodhi tree, having just realized full enlightenment, and having sat cross-legged for seven days experiencing the bliss of liberation, and having emerged from that and examined the world with the Buddha eye. The Lord saw beings tormented by various torments and consumed by various feverish longings born of passion, hatred, and delusion. And then the Lord uttered this inspired verse. This world is subject to torment, afflicted by contact, it calls disease a self, for however it is conceived, it is ever otherwise than that. The world is held by being, is afflicted by being, and yet delights in being. But what it delights in brings fear, and what it fears is suffering. When we reflect on our own lives, think about what it is in life that drives us. It's usually this desire to avoid things that are unpleasant. It says this world is subject to torment. Whatever we run after in life, if we don't get it, we feel tormented. And when we get it, we enjoy it for a little while. And then, because the nature of things is they're always coming and going, arising and ceasing, subject to birth, aging, sickness and death, even ourselves. So there's nothing in this world that we can hold on to. 
we know this. But still we chase after so many things in the world. And then we are tormented when they die and fade away, when we lose our dear ones, or when we become sick, or when we find ourselves afflicted by the conditions of human life. And this was a realization that the Buddha had 2,600 years ago. And here we are, and it's still the same thing. So the world is subject to torment, afflicted by contact. It calls disease a self. So what is it that suffers? Is every time that we construe a self that is seeking the pleasure and the avoidance of pain, that's when we suffer. That's where the suffering arises. Through the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. Through the sense world, constantly impinging on us and creating desire for more of the same or for less of what we're getting. Then we are subject to the disappointment, to the pain, to the loss, to the unhappiness, to the torment. And as much as we run after getting, succeeding, being happy all the time, and fulfilling desire, then that's the formula. Becoming something other, the world is held by being, is afflicted by being, yet it delights in being. Well, think about what do we delight in? We delight in being here, it's so pleasant. It's cold outside and in here it's warm. For an hour, it's pleasant. We have a good relationship to being in this room. If we had to stay in this room for longer, maybe if we were here for two hours, we would still find it pleasant. But beyond two hours, how would it be? Supposing this went on and on and on for three hours, then we would start finding an excuse to leave. First, the people in the back row, they could get out. No problem. But if you're sitting in the front, you don't want to look bad. So you stick it out. When is it going to end? What started out as being a refuge, sitting with familiar friends, a nice evening together. The teachings begin right here in the company of like-minded practitioners. What could be more pleasant? But give it a little bit extra time, three hours, four hours. By midnight, we'd be freaking out. <laughs> and yet, this was supposed to be just an innocent Friday night. <laughs> what went wrong? Where does the torment begin? It begins because we have a change in relationship to conditions. The conditions are not the problem. It's our relationship to the conditions. And the, the self that we create that becomes diseased, that is the disease, is arising and ceasing here in our minds based on the way conditions affect us. We want something more than what we have or less than what we have. The getting something else or the getting rid of what is already there. And that's the whole movement of the mind acting according to the wanting, the desire for things to be other than what they are. Better, 
more or less, but somehow different than what they are. So we fear change, but we're always grasping for change, funny enough, and yet we're afraid of it. What we really fear is suffering, and change brings suffering, always. So at first we're tantalized by change, but in the end we end up realizing that that's what we fear. We fear change because we can't hold on anymore. We can hold on for an hour or two, and then when we see that we have no control, and then the self erupts and tries to insert itself and tries to insert some control over the situation, and we suffer. We start to feel the torments, and we get caught up in being. What are the situations in life that do bring that desire to control, which gets immediately frustrated? Ah, something at work, um, a sickness, going on a wonderful journey to India, and getting the flu, and having to breathe in the polluted air. You look forward to this trip for months and months and months. And then there you are on the the trip of your life. And we can't control sickness. We can't control so many things that create the suffering for us. What about just in the aging of the body? You look in the mirror. How much time do we spend in front of the mirror trying to doctor up this image of what we think we are? What is it that keeps us in a prison? What is it that keeps us caught up in recreating this self to which we're very, very attached? It's identification with the body. Identification with the form of the body, not wanting it to change, not wanting more wrinkles, not wanting the body to stoop. I remember the other day I was giving a public presentation. It was at a funeral. And um, somebody else got up and gave a presentation. And I noticed that that person was stooped. And then I thought, oh, I wonder if I was stooped. (laughs) So immediate. It's like that would have looked really bad. We don't want our age to show because we want to look young and vibrant and be connected and together and with it. And then As we get older, we're not so connected and together and with it anymore. If you don't let go of that self, it's going to let go of you. Just like the car and the computer, the washing machine, the house, everything, it falls apart. It gets old and it gets decrepit. Things become obsolete. We also, the body becomes obsolete. So what are we doing when we come here to meditate is to examine the world, to examine our lives. Not that it's going to fix the things that are subject to decay and dissolution, but it's going to help us to stop creating the self that's trying to prop them all up so that wrinkles don't appear, as if that could ever happen. As that we could eternally look in the mirror and see that beautiful person that we thought we were, that we were 20, 30, or 40 years ago, but that we're not anymore. What happened? Because that's not who we are. This is 
the Buddha's realization that this is not myself. This body, the eyes and what consciousness sees, and the sights that it attaches to, the ears, what hearing consciousness hears and the sounds that it attaches to, the nose, what nose consciousness smells and sensations of smell that it attaches to, etc., etc., and the mind that thinks thoughts and all the creations of self that it gets attached to and the identity that this person that we create, this personality, and that we believe we are, male or female, young or old, redhead or gray, educated, intelligent, or just struggling along, or depressed, whatever our identity is, that's the prison, those are the boundaries, the walls, that we hang around us, that's the the scaffolding of our internal prison. And we live in there. And then whatever happens to that little space that we call ourself as it bounces through life, the conditions around constantly impacting us, torment us in one way or another. Because we have this membrane, a psychic and a, a material membrane that is so sensitive don't come too close, be nice to me, how much time do we invest in creating those boundaries and developing them, defending them, our territory? So then, when we become social activists, for example, what we're really trying to do is create the conditions on the outside that will appeal to us based on our social view on our worldview, the way we've examined the world and what we think the world should be like. That then we become active and passionate to defend that and to uphold that on the outside and control external conditions so they will be pleasing to our worldview. And all of us have slightly different worldviews. Luckily, all of us here in this room have some Dhamma understanding and maybe we realize that the way we think and see and feel and respond isn't so enlightened. So we try to examine well, where does all this suffering and torment begin and how can we create peace within us before we try to artificially create conditions of peace in a world that is so lacking in peace, that is so conflicted. And that conflict seems to be making us unhappy in many ways. The self is always dividing us from each other. And the real project is to find the unity. But it isn't about gaining some kind of freedom from all restraint on the outside so we can do whatever we like. But the real unity comes from a deep inner restraint that brings us to a cessation of struggle with external conditions so that we can find the oneness within us. And then we can work from, act from, live from, speak from, think from a place that is at one with things exactly as they are, that is never troubled or tormented in any way. It means letting go the self to let that go and come 
to the place of stopping, stopping the creations of being, wanting to be other than what we are, as we are, what our true nature is, which is not the body, not the decaying, dying thing on the outside, but the indestructible, sublime, ineffable essence of the truth of our own deepest knowing, an intuitive knowing quality of the mind that understands the deepest truth and the highest peace. When we can stop all wanting once and for all and realize the the freedom from every form of suffering. If we can touch that, this is what the whole meditation practice is leading us towards, away from opinions, projects, movement, any movement at all. When the mind stops moving on the inside, that doesn't mean we don't live from that place because of course the mind has to move. But it's about realizing that point of no movement. That's the source of all movement. That's where all movement begins. If we can have that understanding, then when we do emerge from that moment of peace, from that Nibbana, the ending of all impurity, then we can move in the world with such skill that we are not tormented anymore. One who has gone beyond torment, who has gone beyond being the the little self that is struggling and suffering with conditions, changing, and living with fear. We We can live fearless. It's at at the level of silence, of letting go anything that consciousness holds except the emptiness of opinions, emptiness of thought, emptying out all sankharas, all conditioned mind states, letting them go and emptying that out so that we can be full, filled with this presence reminds me of a story about how easy it is for us to think we get along. But I wanted to change it slightly. A woman is standing on a bridge. She's about to jump off. And another woman comes along and sees her and says, what are you doing? She says, I'm about to jump off the bridge. Why? Because I can't stand this life anymore. It's too much for me. I'm going to kill myself. What, what religion are you? I'm a Buddhist. Oh, I'm also a Buddhist. You can't kill yourself. Do you believe in karma? Yes, so do I. You know the law of karma. You can't kill yourself. What kind of Buddhist are you? I'm a Theravada Buddhist. Well, so am I. I'm also a Theravada Buddhist. Oh, really? What lineage? I'm Ajahn Chah Theravada Buddhist. Ajahn Chah Theravada Buddhist, so am I. That's amazing. Who's your teacher? My teacher is Ajahn Viradhamma. Ajahn Viradhamma? I know Ajahn Viradhamma. We're in the same forest Sangha tradition. Where do you live? I live in Perth. 
Really? You live in Perth? Oh, I live in Smith Falls. We're neighbors. Neighbors. Yeah. Hey, did you sign that petition against the Wat Papong Sangha? Wat Papong Sangha? Oh, no, I didn't sign that petition. You better jump. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> so we can agree and agree and agree and agree, and then it comes a very small point, and we find the place of disagreement. So that's where marriages fall apart. You love each other. And it's such a good relationship until you find the one thing that you disagree about and then you have a divorce. Go kill yourself. The person that you fell in love with, that you had so much in common with, suddenly you develop a really strong opinion against. We even do that with ourselves. We can't even love ourselves. You look in the mirror and you see one new wrinkle that you didn't have before and you can't stand yourself anymore. Never mind the brown spots <laughs> that I keep thinking are chocolate. <laughs> but what about the spots in the heart? What is occluding our vision? What is preventing us from seeing where the kindness, where the real beauty lies? It's not in our belief system, our affinity. It reminds me of very erudite Cambodian monk came to give a talk in one of our monasteries and he was 104 and we were so excited to listen to this monk's talk so he came in and sat down very shriveled very ancient you have to get to a certain great age before people really think you're fantastic <laughs> <laughs> and then we all sat there with breath abated at every word and suddenly he stopped talking nothing he was asleep <laughs> we sat there nobody had an opinion nobody had an opinion we just sat and waited and after about 10 minutes he woke up and he continued from exactly the place where he had been it was so beautiful. And we were all so satisfied, so contented by this wonderful Dhamma talk. Now, if I were to do that, <laughs> I don't think I'd be invited back. <laughs> but there, there is something very special about this particular way of practice and the understanding that we do develop so much love of the teaching and there's much more to happiness than what the world is offering, than old age sickness and death. Between the birth and the death, there's so much struggle, so much becoming, so much trying to find the answer in the things that look good, but in the end, they just keep on disappointing us, and we keep running after them. And the world is always producing new forms, a new iPod, a new kind of car, another form of entertainment to tantalize us, a better diet, or ways of getting rid of addictions, like how to stop smoking, addiction to painkillers, addiction to prescription drugs, or addiction to drugs 
that we started taking because they made us feel good. Because all of us really just want to be happy, even for five minutes. So to not judge ourselves when we feel unhappy and we can't find the happy moment because of a job, a body that doesn't work anymore, a frustrated relationship, then how can we be a friend to ourselves? How can we get through loneliness? How can we live our lives so that we're not constantly trying to seek approval from others and do the right thing and not compromise our values for a job, for a person, to please somebody else, to look good, to do what's popular? We have such faith in this path and practice that we understand where real happiness can be found. It can be found from understanding the truth of the source of real peace in the heart. And we understand where love, unconditional love begins. Then we know that it's not going to be a better identity. It's not going to be winning friendships on the outside, but by being true to ourselves. And that comes through bringing this path of practice to life, not just in the silence of the mind, but in the goodness of our actions and speech and the way that we think. Then we bring to life that deep inner connection. And there is nothing on the outside that we'll need to make us happy. It is possible. And we keep doing that. We keep noticing when we have those moments of not realizing what we're doing and pulling back to the place of real refuge and safety. It is well for us that the Blessed One, having realized his full liberation, still had compassion to go out and teach. Well, we, day by day, can examine our lives and have compassion for ourselves and reteach ourselves moment by moment what is true joy what it is to be truly loving, truly compassionate. Then we offer that to each other, little by little. It all begins with the right understanding, the right intention, stopping and being aware, how am I today? Not giving vent to the wanting mind. So you don't have to even go to another place. That place is within us. That temple is in here. You don't have to wear a robe or join some lineage of of anything. You don't even have to be a Buddhist. The Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. He was just enlightened. Nibbana is just the complete peace. 